So this is called the doctrine of Scripture. The word Scripture just comes from the Latin word scriptura, meaning writings. And when we use the word Scripture as Christians, what we're referring to is the Old Testament and the New Testament. So lots of things are inspired. Hopefully when you pray and when you minister, you're inspired by the Spirit. And hopefully when you write or speak, you're speaking like Peter says, whoever serves should serve according to the grace given them. Whoever serves should serve with the energy that God supplies. Whoever speaks should speak as though speaking the what? The very words of God. But we don't then take those words you speak and put them in the Bible. Because when we say the Bible is scripture, we're saying it is unique and inspired in a way that nothing else is. Scripture, for us, is the Old and New Testaments. Now, if you were a Muslim, what would you say the Scripture is? If you were Muslims. I don't know, maybe I should have asked my GF today. Is he a Muslim? He would say, he would say the Quran is, is Scripture. If you were a Hindu, you would say the Bhagavad Gita. is scripture. If you were Jewish, you would still say the Bible, but you would mean what? Yeah, you would mean the law and the prophets, the, the writings. You get my point. When each group says scripture, they all mean, in some sense, the same thing, God's word. But what we think is God's word, what we're convinced is God's word, is a different set of writings. So for Christians, it's the Old Testament, which we view as building up to and and prefiguring and pointing the way to Jesus, and the New Testament, which we view as the historical witness back to Jesus. So we view, Christians view the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, as ultimately about Jesus. That's the first term, Scripture. The second term is autographs. Now, when I say an autograph, immediately, what do you guys think of? A signature. A signature. But what, they, what we mean when we talk about the autographs of Scripture is the original manuscripts. So Paul writes a letter, let's say the letter to the Galatians. He wrote a letter. He was very emotional. In fact, he was so angry and so sad that the passion comes out in the letter. And then I think that might be the one where he's at the very end. He says, see what large letters I use as I write to you in my own hand, because he had bad eyes. So normally he had an amanuensis, a scribe. So he would speak, and the amanuensis would just write, 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 write. So he wouldn't have to break the thought. He wouldn't have to break the flow of thought. And you'll notice Paul uses long run-on sentences which actually does feel like something you would do while speaking rather than writing. He'll have a paragraph that's only two paragraphs, and in Greek it's one sentence. But in English we break it into like 20 sentences, because Paul's Paul. Okay, the autographs refer to the original texts as they came from the human hand of the author with divine inspiration, and we don't have any autographs. The Bible in your hands is not translated from, an autog- from the autographs because we don't have any. They don't exist. They were, paper gets used, paper gets worn, paper gets replaced. So what they did in the Old Testament, they took this so incredibly seriously. They would carefully, it was, the, it was, it was people's job 
full-time job to sit there as a scribe and carefully copy, 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 as, as meticulously as possible. They triple-checked. You know, the, 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 the rigorous work that Jewish scribes put into making sure they did not mess with God's sacred, holy word, what, an incredible amount of effort was made to scribe correctly because paper wears out. They had scrolls originally rather than leaf pages that, you know, that was invented way later, like with the printing press. Like, well, they had it, but books were not the ideal way. Vellum, uh, papyrus, vellum's like a lambskin kind of a thing, and paper was hugely expensive as well. Like, and most people couldn't read. The, the literacy rate was, was like, what, 10% in the ancient world. world. Right? So if you could read, if you could read, you were expected to read out loud. So someone reading in public quietly to themselves would have been, in, would have been viewed as incredibly rude. That'd be like walking right today with a lit cigarette into a kindergarten and blowing it in kids' faces. They'd be like, what is wrong with you? You're so selfish and rude. What about other people? If you were, had, a, had a scroll in public and you were reading quiet to yourself rather than out loud, that would just, what is wrong with you? You're hoarding knowledge. What are you up to? What evil are you up to? So, so reading was, was an incredible gift, and it was very, very valued. Education was very, very valued. And if you could read, it was like, wow. So where you, what you would do as a regular Jewish person is you would go to synagogue, and the scrolls, because you didn't have your own copy of the scrolls, they lived at the synagogue, but you faithfully went and the rabbis and the teachers of the law, they would read. So your, your relationship to your Bible was what's called, you like the ear? Aural. Aural. And then, so, so what I'm trying to say is, your relationship to your Bible was not a quiet time in your privacy of your own home. It was, you heard huge chunks of Scripture read out loud, and you got a big sense of the story. It was all about the story. It was all about the story. So I, I just, th- these are like little details, right? So, but what you didn't have was autographs. What you had was copies. Copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. And that's what we have today. Next word. Okay, just real quick. What did I just say? Do we have the autographs of the Bible? Do you think maybe some of the copies, we didn't have copy makers, we had hand copies. And I just told you how much reverence they put into them. But no matter how much reverence you put into it, if humans are involved... There's going to be some mistakes. So do you think that the, tra- that the copies we have are perfect? They're not. So we don't have the autographs. We do have imperfect copies. That's important to know, right? Are you still with me? Okay. Don't throw your Bible away just because I said that. So then what are our modern Bibles translated from if we don't have autographs? I should have brought my Greek New Testament because I have a Greek New Testament and if you look at it, 
open it up, half the page is Greek, and then the bottom half is all the technical data. It'll tell you exactly what text family, like so, so you have cop families of copies, the North African families of copies that were found in the Alexandrian region, the Italian families of copies that were found in Rome, the Greek groups of, of copies that were found over here in the whole, in the whole right? And then you got these, so, so there were families that had various variants, just like, just like, you know, like say squirrels move to one area, they look different in, in North Dakota. Squirrels from North Dakota look different than in Delaware, then, and they look different than the ones in Virginia. But they're all squirrels. But they are descendant from different ancestors, so they bear the imprint of their ancestor. So what the, what, there's, there's, there's a whole job called textual criticism, where people take the copies of copies of copies from this family and from this family and from this family, and they try to take each family and get back to the oldest version of it. Shorter is almost always older. Copies tend to grow, not shrink, because scribes are scared they're going to lose the word of God. So if some scribe made a comment in that margin, oh, uh, we do it different over in our church, the next scribe goes, was that the Bible or a commentary? And to be safe, to be conservative, to not risk losing the word of God, they put it into the Bible. So your Bible, as it gets copied and copied, tends to grow. Are you with me? So there's a job called text criticism, and it's people's full-time job where they rigorously study the various families, and then they compile them into one supercopy. And from that supercopy, modern translations into English are made. Are you still okay? And if you say, not me, I have the King James, then yours is less accurate than mine. Because the King James is based on older man, I'm sorry, is based on younger manuscripts, because in the last hundred years, especially since the turn of the century of the 19th, since the turn of the 20th century, right, the 1900s and on, we found tons of old clay pots and various things, chock full of super old manuscripts. So the translations made today are more accurate to the originals than the translations that were done in the fifths, in the 500s and way more accurate than the translations done in the 1600s when the reformers were translating, finally, for the first time, away from Latin. Everyone spoke Latin as the theological language, which was weird, right? You'd go to church and the Bible would be read in Latin, but you only speak Spanish, so what are you going to do? Or you're in Germany, and you only speak German, but the Bible's read in Latin, and you don't know what the heck's going on. But it's God's book, so I guess we better go nod like the, like the gentleman next to me today at the school when I was picking up my kid. He didn't speak English. He just kept laughing no matter what I said. <laughs> Oh, amen, amen, preacher. I have no idea what's going on. You got a question or a, com or a comment? Yeah, isn't there one King James that's supposed to be like the closest to the original with like 14? King James was an excellent translation. Is that, it's, it, it was released in the year 1611. It, it, for the time it came out, it was the best English translation of the time. And it's still a very beautiful translation today. But what I'm saying is it's based on manuscripts yeah. that are not as original as the ones we have today, which is why King James only people get mad at us because they're like, your version is missing this in the name of the Father, Holy Spirit, so they're trying to take the Trinity out of the Bible. No, it was added later because they had the doctrine of the Trinity. They started to write it into the Bible. It, so when, when the King James only people get in your face and say it's the only good translation, they should, if they're really serious, they should stop reading in English and start reading in Hebrew and Greek. And then they'd familiarize themselves with how they got a Bible in the first place, and they'd, they'd loosen up on that stuff they, a lot, and they'd go, oh, okay. Um, it's, a, it's a fine translation unless you want to make converts. 
Because why would you make the Bible, which was written in plain, in plain Greek, everyday, ordinary, non-spiritual Greek, and turn it into fuddy-duddy old English that nobody speaks, not even in England anymore? It's just stupid. Anyway. Okay. So, autographs. We don't have them. But when I look in my Greek New Testament, it'll tell me, here's how we're rendering it, because we think it's most likely the original rendering. And we rate this one a B, super sure that this is original. We rate this one a C, we're pretty sure. We rate this one a D, mm, it really changes. So then there's passages like the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, where pretty much everyone knows it's not original to John. But it's left in your Bible because of tradition. Because it was included early enough in Christian history that even though we know it was not in John's gospel originally, we leave it in. And that poses questions. Is the autograph authoritative and inspired, but not the church? Or is the church herself in the process also being guided by the Lord? Are you with me? And that is a fascinating question. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because some people would say, only the autographs are perfect. And I'm saying, hold up now. Does the church have the Holy Spirit? Did the Lord take his hands as soon as Paul was done writing for Galatians, like for example, and the Lord was on him, and then the Lord took his hands off and was totally uninvolved in the rest of the process of getting a Bible to us today? No. Okay. Next words, textual criticism. I just talked to you all about that, so I don't feel like I need to explain that. And criticism here doesn't mean you're making fun of or criticizing the Bible. It's you're carefully critiquing to try to get as close to the autograph as you possibly can. And, and I will tell you this, they do good work. And almost everything in your Bible is profoundly close to the original. And the parts we don't know, we know we don't know. And they're really not important. Meaning that it's like, did the phrase, and the Father, does that belong there? Or is it, and the Father, and is it the Father and the Son? You're not going to build your whole theology on some of these little, little variants. They're really not deal breakers. They're definitely not, did Jesus, is, is he really, was he really raised from the dead? It's nothing, it's, do you hear what I'm saying? It's, the little variants are usually not really anything doctrinal. They're just, the exact phrases missing. Okay. Canon. You've heard this word, right? The canon. The canon of Scripture. Uh, this just refers to the 66 books, right? What did I say? The whole Bible is what I meant. <laughs> the canon. The canon is the authoritative list of books that the whole early church recognized as the official standard of the faith. The word canon means rule. And the best way to think of this for me is like a ruler that you use to measure. It's a measuring stick. 
So the canon, okay, here's what the best I come, come up with to talk about what the word canon means. There's a Bureau of Weights and Measures, and the Bureau of Weights and Measures in like 1960, there's a metal cylinder, and that metal cylinder is one kilogram. All other people who claim something weighs a kilogram have to go measure, this, this is the one. This is the one. And if your kilogram weighs different than this kilogram, it's wrong. If it's not heavy enough, this is how we'd know. This is the one. So at the, there's one original. There's one original in the Bureau of Weights and Measures by which all others are measured. That's what the canon of Scripture is. It's the, it's the authoritative original kept in the Bureau of Weights and Measures by which all your thoughts of God and all the things said to and about God are measured to know if they have the, 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 the authorization of God. Go for it. Okay. So that... that yeah. Right. So that's raising a great question is how, first off, who... Who gave us the canon? Not, don't just tell me God. I want to know who the people were because it happened at some point in human history. Some point in church history, there was no canon of New Testament. We inherited the Jewish canon. How did that come about? And I could really complicate this talk because the Jewish canon... Jews in Alexandria spoke so much Greek that they decided they needed a Greek Old Testament. So they made a translation of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint because 70, Septuagint means 70, 70 scholars got together, Jewish scholars, and they made a, Jew, a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And then that's the New Testament. That's the Old Testament. What am I saying? Let me start this sentence over. 70 Jewish scholars made a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. The books are in a different order than the Hebrew Old Testament. Isaiah has way more chapters in the Greek than it does in the Hebrew. What? And here's the kicker. Your New Testament only quotes from the Septuagint. And the Septuagint reads very differently than the Hebrew. So in your, in your English Bible, your Old Testament is translated from the Hebrew. Your New Testament quotes from a totally different version of your Old Testament than you have. Are we okay? Whoa. Yeah. That just sent me down a wormhole. And let's say you're... And the New Testament quotes from the book of Isaiah more than any other book. And the version of Isaiah they quote every single time is the Greek Old Testament. Do you think that means that they only thought the Greek was inspired? Of course not. They understood that the Hebrew was inspired. They also knew the Greek was inspired. They also knew they weren't exactly identical. They weren't bothered by it. They weren't bothered by it. If you are, you think differently about what the Bible is and how it's put together than they did. Here's something for you. Um, and I'm not even yet answering the question of how did we get the canon. There's several places in the New Testament where the New Testament author wrongly quotes the Old Testament. And by wrongly, I mean they say, well, it's like so-and-so says, and then they quote the wrong prophet. Man, when I discovered that, it really took the condemnation off of me for when I accidentally misquote something in a sermon. I'm like, oh, even the New Testament authors, while under the inspiration of the Spirit, still sometimes misremembered stuff. 
And because they misremembered rather than intentionally deceived, God's like, that's fine. That's a sacred mistake. That's different than a, than a violation and a sin. Okay. Are you guys still okay? Some people would be like ready to hang me right now just for admitting that. Or like when the Old Testament says, don't eat animals that chew the cud. And then it says, like the hair, hairs chew the cud. But then you realize by studying their hairs, they don't chew the cud. They just chew a lot. And then they're not vomiting up. The chew the cud means you, you bring it up out of your second stomach or whatever, and you re-chew it like a cow does. But hares do a little chewing motion, and they don't actually chew the cud. They just chew funny. It's a ruminant animal. Right, but it doesn't go... Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So is the Bible lying? Or are we freaking out over details that the Bible didn't intend us to go so deep with? Freaking out. It's okay. He's just chewing. It's okay. You don't have to throw your whole Bible away over the rabbit, dude. Chill. He said hare one time, then rabbit the second time. You know he's the pagan. I wouldn't know. I think I have eaten a rabbit, but there's something in my heart that just gets sad when I have to kill cute animals and eat them. That's just, I don't know. Pigs are ugly. But anyway, moving on. I bet it does. I just wouldn't, have to be the, wouldn't want to have to be the one to put it down. Show of hands, who likes murdering rabbits? Okay, next. Okay, so the canon. The New Testament canon was what the church seemed to be doing fine without, without an official list for a couple hundred years. Now, they all had the copies of copies because they all wanted the copies. Oh, you got, a, you got a copy of 1 Corinthians? Can we have one? Heck yeah, it's amazing. They would share copies because Christians, they wanted to know what the apostles were saying because the apostles were handpicked by Jesus, correct? Right. Who else was authoritatively witnesses of Jesus? They were handpicked. Yeah, Jesus himself picked them. And not only were they handpicked, but in the book of Acts, the first thing, the first thing in Acts chapter 1 that they prioritize is replacing the one who betrayed him. Yeah, Maybe we don't think so highly about how important it was to replace the one of the 12 that, that left his post. But they knew that the 12 apostles had a sacred duty because Jesus picked, hand-picked 12 and specifically said, you guys are my witnesses. You've been with me three years. I've taught you everything. You've seen me do everything. You've seen me die. You've seen me alive. And now it's going to be your job as my authoritative, authorized witnesses to bear witness to what you've seen and heard. So the reason the New Testament started to be written was because them boys got old. They didn't expect to die before he came back. Do you know that, right? Like, they didn't expect to die before he came back. Right. Suddenly, they got gray hair, the ones who didn't get martyred. John's 90 when he writes his book, supposedly. I don't know. Tradition says that. He was also boiled in oil, thrown on the island of Patmos, still they couldn't kill him. Then he wrote Revelation. So, he starts to, they start, this generation starting to get old. So, like, John Mark goes to Peter, says, hey, Uncle Peter, can you tell me what happened? And Mark writes, and that's the first gospel that's written, is Mark. Well, actually, it's the first gospel written, but they think Galatians might have been earlier than it because there's controversy as the church spreading out. The book of Acts gives you the, the, the rundown of the historical events. And Christians will freak out telling you exactly what book was written where, and I don't know. I just don't know. But these boys wrote a lot of letters when they realized that they might actually go to heaven before Jesus comes back. We better get what we've these stories we've been telling from the oral tradition because, again... This is a spoken culture. Yeah. It's not a book culture. Then these boys get old and they go, we better write some of this down before we forget. So they start writing it down. The letters of Paul begin to be used as scripture. The letters of Peter are used as scripture. A couple hundred years into the church, 
Everybody who's a leader in the early church, they can point who laid hands on me, who laid hands on the guy who laid hands on me. It was an apostle. That's called apostolic succession. Nowadays, us Protestants, we're real skeptical about apostolic succession, and we talk about apostolic doctrine. But for that early church, you needed to know that your preacher was discipled by, let's say, let's say, um, shoot, I'm, uh, Ignatius. He was discipled by Polycarp. Polycarp was discipled by John. And that mattered to them. And then in this generation, three, three generations forward, suddenly there, there comes to be a, a bishop named Arius. And Arius, he's looking in his Bible and he goes, Jesus is created. There was a time when Jesus didn't exist, and then there was a time when Jesus existed. So maybe, maybe we shouldn't worship Jesus. Maybe he's just a good example for us. And the early church goes, huh? Bro, that, no. No, Jesus was, is eternal with the Father. He's worshipped with God. He's not greater than the Father. He's in submission to the Father. But there was never a time when Jesus didn't exist. And then there comes this other group, and this other group says, you know, the God of the Old Testament's mean and evil and nasty, and he stuck us in these disgusting meat sacks, but Jesus, Jesus, he's going to liberate us from these gross meat sacks and take us to paradise. The God of the Old Testament is bad. He enslaved us in the flesh. The God of the New Testament is the loving Father of Jesus. They're different gods. And they're definitely not. They're all... And the church goes, wait a minute, hold up. You're wrong. What do they say? On what basis do you say I'm wrong? And they say, on the basis of the, of the writings. The writings of the apostles. Oh, yeah? Well, I have my own writings. I have the secret gospel of St. Thomas. I have this writing. I have that writing. And I don't accept your Old Testament at all because that's a yucky God. And suddenly, not because they wanted to, not because they were in a good mood, we should come up with the Bible. No, we better nail down which writings are apostolic, meaning either written by an apostle, or written by someone who thoroughly investigated and interviewed and ministered alongside the apostles, like the book of Hebrews. We don't know which guy wrote it. In order to place it in the canon, they said, Paul did it. Even though we kind of all know that's not Paul. That's not Paul's language. That's not Paul's vocabulary. That's not Peter. I don't know. Could be Apollos. I don't care. My point is, it's apostolic. It 100% matches the apostolic doctrine and witness. Yeah. So I don't really care who wrote it. So like the book of Luke. Yeah. Would be a saint. Luke wasn't one of the twelve, was he? But he thoroughly investigated, he was in league with, and he was in relationship with, so that was clearly established as apostolic. Yeah. Paul wasn't one of the twelve, but Peter affirms that his letters are he says Paul says things that are hard to understand, which some people twist like they do the other scriptures. So, Paul, so Peter refers to Paul's emails, his text messages, as scripture. That had to be a weird feeling for Paul because I'm of the opinion that these boys didn't know they were writing the Bible when they were writing their letters. They were just doing ministry. They were just helping churches. They were just communicating with the beloved. They were just doing what needed to be done. And honestly, their life felt like a struggle. They were trying to save people who were in sin and who were messed up and who needed help. So heresy shows up in the form of Arius, a bishop, who says Jesus is created, not eternal. Human sin nature 
uh, Pelagius, another guy, comes up. He says, human sin nature. But they're not apostolic. These folk, folks came hundreds of years later. Okay. The 300s, in the 300s. Then, then you have, finally you have an emperor on the throne, and he says, what are y'all all fighting about? So he calls for a council. So this is an edit. In 313, Constantine passes the Edict of Milan, making Christianity legal to great relief and huge fanfare. Later, the Emperor Theodosius calls for the Council of Constantinople in 381, where they respond to the issue of the Arian threat and kind of develop early beliefs about Jesus that will lead to later the, the much clearer expression of the doctrine of the Trinity. The next year, 382, at the Council of Rome, they establish the canon of Scripture. And the council comes together and they officially put this thing to bed. Which letters are, which writings are of the apostles or apostolic and which writings are not? What doctrines about who Jesus is and who the Father is and who the Holy Spirit is are Christian and which ones have encroached in from, from non-Christian backgrounds just sort of sneaking in? Say what again? Who? Oh. Because everybody has to follow G, you know, be a Christian. Oh. Down. Well, I'm going to tell you, after being murdered, killed, hung on poles, fed to lions, burned alive, when Constantine began to publicly say, I am a Christian, and he began to make, give money to, to, to congregations so that they could, like, build buildings, the church, I'm telling you right now, the church viewed him as the hand of God, the mercy of God. Now, what they didn't see is that all the fake Christians would flood into the church after that. Can, can you imagine how much joy you would have? And it was like, oh, because they thought we, they, they accused us of cannibalism because what are these Christians doing in there? They're eating flesh and drinking blood. Is it, did they murder babies? And, and we adopted Romans, when they would have a baby they didn't want, like especially if it was like a little girl and they wanted a boy, They'd like put it on the mountain, let it die, exposed to the, let the birds eat it. And Christians would swoop in and adopt those babies. I get very emotional when I think about that stuff. You know, because that's how, that's how the church grew. The church grew like that. What did that make them think? They're swooping and stealing babies and they're talking about eating flesh. They must be eating these babies. And, and, and we would say that all your gods aren't gods. There's only one God. So they called us atheists. You irreligious atheists. They, we said we had, a, we had a Lord. We already had an emperor. We already had a Lord. Caesar is Lord. No, not for us. Jesus is Lord. So we're obviously traitors and rebels. So we're traitors. We're rebels. We're cannibals. We're atheists. They were not big fans of Christians. So Luke goes out of his way in his writings to show how Christians are actually really work to honor authority. And don't, we don't want to cause rebellions and, and revolts. You know, so like the story of the great is Artemis of the Ephesian for two hours in the city of, you know, like so he, Luke's trying to show it's actually paganism that's creating the rebellion. And we're just people who actually submit to and honor authority. Like he, that's why it's so important for Paul to communicate. I'm a citizen. I'm a Roman citizen. I'm a, I'm, cause to be a Roman citizen back then was a big deal. Do, okay. So I'm, I'm kind of off, off, off point here, but, Okay, so the, the canon of Scripture was developed in response to fights, in response to struggles, in response to heresy, in response to false teaching. In fact, the best theology of the church has never happened in peacetime. Almost all the beautiful, good, solid songs, prayers, books, 
uh, the good stuff that has happened in the saints has almost always happened in a life neither you nor I would want to have to live through. The, the, sweet, the sweet honey of David's life came from the 14 years of running away from Saul in the wilderness. When he got in the palace, he screwed it up and had sex with Bathsheba and killed. You, know, you hear what I'm saying? I'm not saying it was wrong for him to take power. I'm saying there was something of the battle that, that drove his heart into the intimate place of dependence on God. And so for the church, where does the sweetness of your scripture come from? The Psalms. Where does the sweetness come from the struggle with David? Where does the sweetness of the fact of a New Testament at all come from? The persecution and struggle of the early church to walk in purity in a hostile environment, a hostile world that, that wants to snuff out the life that's put in you by Jesus. Like, and where does the canon of Scripture come from? From the all-consuming threat of false teaching. There was one of my heroes is named Athanasius, a North African preacher. Now, Arianism had been officially declared false. I just told you about that. Arianism declared false. But in the time of Athanasius, Arianism was winning. Orthodoxy was the minority, and Arianism was the dominant view. And Athanasius would hide with the monks in the desert from people trying to catch him and, and, you know, squash his little movement. I imagine he felt that the truth would die. There's a little expression, Athanasius contra mundum. Athanasius against the world. Okay. I love that guy. He just, his whole life, he just kept writing on the Trinity, the Trinity, the Christ, the Trinity, the Trinity, the Trinity. And you go, man, is this all you want to talk about? Yes, because in his generation, they were denying it. They were denying it. They were denying it. The fact that now you and I stand here and we take the Trinity for granted, it's from the sweat, blood, and tears of people like him, who when he was this tiny minority... Okay, back to the doctrine of Scripture. I'm just saying, these boys who, who, who the church, the, the pastors of the church, when they came together for the council to decide, to explain what the, and here, they didn't decide what they think. You know what they did to decide what books were in the Bible? They looked around the room and they said, what books do you preach in your church? Going back from the earliest time. Because remember what I said? Somebody laid hands on me. Who laid hands on me? This guy. Who laid hands on him? That guy. Who laid hands on him? John, Peter, Paul. What books have you guys always used? These. They didn't come up with books they decided. They listed the books that were common in all the churches that they preached from. There were other books they read that weren't in the Bible, that didn't make, it, didn't make the cut, like Enoch. They didn't preach from it. There were other books they read, like the intertestamental books, like First, second, and third Maccabees, Tobit. I have a version of the copy of my Bible that has uh, the uh, the Apocrypha in it. It's good readings, but it's like Max Lucado or John Bill Johnson. It's good stuff. I would gladly give it to people to read, but I wouldn't make it authoritative. And so that's what it was. It was not them deciding what they felt good about. It was them saying what what is believed everywhere. Always and by all. What do you mean everywhere, always and by all? By the churches. So that's where they came up with the canon. They didn't come up with it at all. They simply acknowledged what the Holy Spirit had been using already to make disciples. Here's a fundamental idea. Jesus, we, say, we sometimes talk about Scripture as God's revealed truth, right? 
But there's something that's even more revealed than Scripture, and that's Jesus. Jesus is actually the, capital W, Word of God. The Scripture is the witness to the Word of God. Are you with me? He, he, he is, he is a, the, the apex, the brightest revelation. Words about God is not the same as God in the flesh. The words about God are true and faithful and, re, and reliable, but... So Hebrews 1, 3... Exactly. Hebrews 1, 3 says he's the exact representation of the Father's being. The old, the, the old uh, early church phrase is the, he's the icon of God. We use cameras rather than paintings. So for us, we would say he's the image. He's the photograph of God. The exact... Okay, so, so and, and that's helpful because, as I said, uh, the reason the New Testament books are authoritative is because they are, they get their authority from how close the eyewitness of, is to the word of God, Jesus. So it's not so much this process of somebody has the spirit come on them and they, and they just go out of their, and then, and then they, oh. the apostles are the hand-picked eyewitnesses to God to his revelation in Jesus. So scripture gets us its authority from the person of Jesus. The New Testament is authoritative because it is apostolic, meaning it's the eyewitness testimony of those trained and picked by Jesus. And if it's not the 12 themselves, it's still the authorized witness of the 12, like Peter affirming Paul's letters, like Mark getting his information from Peter, like Luke, we've already said all this. And then here's a final, a final thing. The, the canon of scripture is also and this is a very subjective thing. It's self-authenticating. What I mean is the Spirit of God bears witness when we read it and when we preach it and when we pray it that it is true. Now, I realize that is a, that is a very subjective argument. So it's not the first argument for Scripture. It's, it's a, it, you, know, you can put the word self-authenticating. Another word to define, inerrancy. I'm sure you've, used this, you've heard this word a lot, inerrancy. <coughs> anybody, anybody know what that word means? Without error. So, so here's what Christians mean. Uh, the, the doctrine of inerrancy of Scripture is, is the idea that the Bible is without any faults, without any mistakes in everything it teaches, both in matters of history and science, as well as faith. So inerrancy, some people would hear this and they go, okay, so you just said earlier, you just said earlier that, that there were errors, and you also said we don't have the autographs. And this is, this is where I say, okay, so... So Jesus is the Inerrancy allows for the reality that we don't have the autographs. So almost every denomination has a statement about the Bible, and almost every denomination's statement about the Bible says that there are no errors in the autographs. Why even have a doctrine of inerrancy about the autographs we don't have? Now, there's probably a good answer to that, why, why you'd still want one. Well, 
Here, your doctrine is true. Here's my... If you have a doctrine that the autographs are without error, it means it's actually worth doing the work of text criticism and careful translation, doesn't it? And it also, but it could be viewed by critics of the faith as a clever dodge, so that anytime they, they find a, an incompatibility, um, a contradiction, a mistake, for example, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they tell the events of Jesus' crucifixion and death, they're in all different order. They say this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And then Matthew says, no, this happened, and then this happened, and this happened. And then John says, I'm not even going to tell you any of that. I'm just going to tell you about this and this. And you go, what? But it's all out of order. Which one's telling the truth? They all they, yeah. Could it be like there, there was like different views of right. what yeah. happened? That's a separate talk called, how do we deal with the contradictions of Scripture? And to say there aren't any, it, it just means you haven't read your Bible carefully yet. When you haven't read your Bible and you just say amen to everything the preacher says, it's real easy not to see this kind of stuff. But when you get serious and you start reading the Bible two hours a day, you're going to bump into it. When you start treating the Bible with, with reverence and seriousness, you're going to start to have doubts you never had because you're going to have knowledge you never had. And then you're going to have to try to make sense of stuff that you didn't have to make sense of before because you didn't notice. It's like when you grow up and you realize how imperfect your parents were. You know, and hopefully the mature perspective that you'll get to later is a lot more mercy for them because they did mean well and they were doing the best they could with what they had. I have a very sympathetic approach to the scripture and I've learned to trust the author of scripture and the human writers of scripture. So even when I find a mistake or a problem or a misremembrance because I know God and because I know them, I go, I must be missing something yet. Rather than if I had a hostile approach, it would all be like, aha, see, told you, ha, kick the Bible into the trash can, right? What about typos, mistakes from memory, historical incompatibilities? How about this question? Can a Christian have a, have a deep reverence for Scripture without affirming inerrancy? Can a Christian be faithful to Scripture as Scripture after their eyes are open to see Scripture more like an adult? Because most of us have a childish view of Scripture. In Sunday school, we're handed a book. It's God's Word, the end. And the whole world looks different as a kid than as an adult. And, you know, you, you believe what everything your dad says when you're little. Then you realize that he can't lift everything, and he can't do everything, and he doesn't know everything, and he even forgets and makes mistakes and hurts feelings, and, oh, he's a human. Some of us chuck the whole Christian faith away when, when that happens instead of getting an adult understanding a mature understanding of the faith. Infallibility is almost like inerrancy, but I like it better. Infallibility says the Bible is completely reliable and always is, re is trustworthy for what the divine and human author were trying to say. Inerrancy is, doesn't make any little mistakes. That's different than infallibility, which says God's, God's word always has purpose, and it's always reliable and trustworthy and, and succeeds at its purpose. I have strongly affirmed infallibility of the text we have. Remember how I said inerrancy has to do with the text we don't have, the autographs? What about the book in your hands? Is it reliable? I say the book in your hands is infallible. Even in translation, the basic reality of what God's communicating is trustworthy and reliable and, full, and serves its purpose. Inspiration is the next word. 
It just means that God worked through the human authors to communicate and reveal himself. That's all it means. God worked through them. Uh, the word inspire means God breathed, that God's the ultimate source of your Bible. Even though Peter thought it up and wrote it, even though Paul thought it up and wrote it, ultimately, when you're reading it, you're not reading it because you, you want to get in touch with Paul. You do want to hear from Paul, but you want to hear from Paul so you can what? Get in touch with God. This is the book God breathes. He doesn't just breathe on it. He breathed it out. He can breathe on a lot of stuff, including me. But he breathed this book out. Organic inspiration means God kept the personalities, perspectives, culture, vocabulary, quirkiness of the original author is intact. He didn't, he didn't, Paul's in there. His fingerprints are on it. His sweat is on it. Each person is just themselves. Inspiration didn't make any of them less themselves. It made them their best self. And they wrote. That's, that's how it works in our lives too, by the way. Uh, we're not cogs in a wheel. We're not, our lives are not insignificant. The world would be significantly cheaper if we were not in it. And Jesus, by affirming, I made you, I know you, I have a calling on your life, he's radically affirming who we are. Strangely, he's the only Lord I know of all the various gods who doesn't want less of me and more of him. The more of him I'm filled with, the more I become the real me. And the more of me I give away to him, the more he puts back into me the real me. And then I actually make a contribution for the good of the world that no one else was designed to make the way I, the way I make it. That is cool. So, so it, d- it doesn't just work in the writing of the Bible, the organic inspiration where they leave, their personalities are intact. It works in your life. Your personality gets filled with him, not erased. You don't take on the personality of Jesus. You take on the values, motives, and voice, and, and uh, I don't know, the character of Jesus, right? You keep your personality, but you take on his character. Next word is necessity. I, I'm going through these pretty quick now. Necessity. This is just saying we actually need Bibles. Some people seem to almost have the idea just good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, Bibles are optional, churches are optional, gospel's optional, Jesus is optional, all roads lead to heaven. That's not the perspective of the Bible, is it? The perspective of the Bible is in times past, God used to tolerate such stupidity and wickedness, but now he's actually set a day on which everyone's going to be judged through Jesus, and he's, in, and he's calling, not just inviting, he's, he's calling everyone to, to repent and believe in Jesus. And, and there's no other name under heaven given, given whereby we must be saved. And so that witness to Jesus, again, is in your Bible. It's in Scripture. So you'll see our culture, as our culture shifts and the church shifts, you'll see more and more why I feel like it's so important to get passionate about words like the Bible's actually necessary. Just the other day, uh, a dude who I thought I liked got on there and he was talking about sexual ethics. And he said, well... We should not view what Genesis says about maleness and femaleness and sexual ethics as being all that we can know and say about sexuality in the same way that we don't view Genesis' story of 
Here's the parents of all those who are musicians as being the final word on that, or all that the Bible says about nature and biology over here as being the end-all, be-all. We've moved beyond the Bible in terms of what we know about these subjects. And other people were clicking the laugh emoji. Of course, a lot of people click the like and the love emoji because they are doctrinally false as well, like he is, because that's, that's false teaching, by the way. I'm just clear with you. He seemed to be such a wonderful, helpful man. But the closer I look at what he's teaching, he's just said, the Bible doesn't have what you need when it has to do with defining maleness, femaleness, marriage, sexuality. We're going to have to go beyond the Bible. And I go, you've just completely undermined Scripture as Scripture. Why even read Bibles? I wanted to say to him, brother, it would be really helpful if you didn't teach at all. Because you are going to cause people to think they're serving God when they're just serving their culture and their flesh. Instead of calling them to repent and believe what God has revealed, what I'm trying to say here is Scripture is necessary. God makes God known. And where does he make him known? Primarily in Jesus. And where do we find out what that is? The Bible, which is the authoritative witness to what Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what he's said, what he's like, what he affirms, what he denies, what kind of life is pleasing to God. Scripture is necessary because it takes God to reveal God. We are not going to drift in our own wisdom to God. No culture ever has. This is a big word. Perspicuity. You're going to just need this word. Oh, you got it. You got it. Perspicuity. I don't know why we didn't just call it clarity. Because perspicuity, what we're trying to say is God's word is understandable. I'm telling you right now, I I got off Twitter because people are offended out of their minds. They call people like me Theobros. That's their nickname for people like me. Whatever, Theobro, Theobro. Because apparently theology doesn't belong to men, especially not white men, and we are the problem. And I'm I'm like, dude, I can't help that I'm a man and I can't help that I'm white. Here was the statement that they were getting hot and bothered about. Scripture is clear. They don't, want, they don't want to say Scripture is clear. They want to say Scripture is complicated and you can't know it. And when you stand there and quote it to me like you understand what it means and that I need to repent of this, that, and the other, it's because you are arrogant and you're making the complicated Bible. You're pretending it's simple so you can use it to club me over the head and manipulate and control me, white man. And I go, what? First of all, if I was a black woman, I would still say what I'm saying right now, which is that God gave us a Bible not to confuse us, but to guide us. And that the Bible doesn't belong to the scholars. The Bible belongs to the church. Scholars are helpful, but the church and the Holy Ghost are enough for us, not maybe to understand everything in the Bible, but to understand enough to know God and please Him and get home with the well done. That's the doctrine of perspicuity. God's Word is clear. Maybe not about every dang question we have, but how to know God and please him, yes. And actually, my heart is, I had to get off Twitter because I can't do it. My, my heart gets broke too. I get too upset. I get too sad. Where are the people consumed with a big, magnificent vision of God? Social ethics and social justice and gender and class and race and sexual identity seem to dominate this generation's perspective so much 
if Jesus doesn't agree with them on those issues, he's not good news for us. So we rewrite him in that image, in this new image. We make the gospel all about those, those ethical issues first. And I'm like, who is God? What is life? What is a good life? What is life for? And who knows? And I say Jesus is the shining example of a good life. And he actually knows what life's for. I would start there, but I just had to get off Twitter because it was, I'm I'm dead serious. Special revelation. Okay, general revelation is that God, God makes himself known through what he's made. A sunset, a sunrise, flowers, people, the rain, the mountains, the grass, the changing of the seasons. God makes himself known through what he's made. But that's not as clear as God speaks to Moses through a burning bush, calls him to go and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. God gives him 10 commandments on the mountain. He makes a covenant with them to, out of all the nations of the earth, a special possession, his own people, who are going to make his character and ways known to the rest of the world because he hasn't made himself known to the rest of the world directly like he has to them. And he wants them to be a kingdom of priests who make known what he has revealed. And then ultimately Jesus comes as the clearest revelation of making known. So now we can know that we're saved. We can know what God is like. We can know God is a father. We can know our sins are forgiven. We can know if there's life after death instead of wonder and hope. We can know. That's special revelation. So, so again, this kind of falls under the heading of the Bible is kind of necessary. Could you have special revelation without the Bible? Could it all stay in oral tradition without being written down? I suppose, and for many generations, it was in the Old Testament before they wrote down a lot of it. And I suppose for several generations, it was in the New Testament before they wrote it down. But I am so thankful. I mean, can you imagine being in our world and just wondering what life is for and what God is like and what life means and going, you know what, I'm convinced that there's a good God, but I don't know what he's like. And, and just wishing I mean, just wish with all the opinions, with all the perspectives, with all the speculation, with all the competing worldviews, wouldn't it just be so stinking amazing if God actually wrote it in a book? What he's like, what he wants, what a good life is, how to live, what to think, what not to think. It would be, I'm just telling you right now, if there was such a book where God made himself known, if God revealed himself in a book, I'm just telling you right now, guys, if there were two copies on planet Earth, neither you nor I, none of, none of us in this room would be able to afford them because they would be worth billions if there were 100 copies, they'd be worth billions. And if there was such a book and I knew that it was available to me, I'm telling you right now and I'm not lying to you, I would make it my goal to read that every single day. I would anchor myself to that book. And then you know what else? If I knew that not only did this God write a book, you know it would be even better than that? An example like show up among us so I could see what it looks like, so I could know if you care or not. Maybe take on some of our sufferings. Maybe actually walk among us. And if I knew that, if I knew that God had actually done that, I would take the, the, that, if I could get close to that, even if it was in story form, and I would meditate on that. I would make it my goal to like meditate on that every single day. It's just too bad he hasn't. That was a joke at the end. And this is, the, this, is the, this is the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. That's the final word, is the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture doesn't answer every question that there is to answer. And Scripture doesn't tell us everything there is to know about God. In fact, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things, what? Belong to the Lord. But the revealed things belong to us. Scripture is more than enough, according to Peter, 
by God's great and precious promises, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Scripture is more than enough. It's sufficient. It doesn't answer every one of my questions. I have tons of questions. It doesn't t- it, scripture doesn't even record everything God said and did to people in their lives. There's stuff Jesus did that the, the, John the Apostle said, we didn't write it all down. It would take millions of books that took, you know. Fun. <laughs> but he says, just because God did it and just because God said it doesn't mean it's included in the book. The stuff I included in the book, I included for a reason. So that you can know him. So that you can trust him. So that you can relate to him. Because life's in him. That's the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. It's more than we need. It's more than enough. Are we, are we done? This was just sort of a, a, a quick overview. You had a question or a comment? Excellent. If you did, that would be fine. Um, he's given us a book, guys. And no, the book is more complicated than maybe I thought when I was little. And I went through a whole season of my Christian life where I freaked out about the book. But you know what's crazy? My faith in the book snapped back as though it were made of like rubber instead of like brittle um, porcelain. It's the weirdest thing. Through relationship with Jesus, even though I went through seminary, college and seminary, and they like destroyed my faith in what the Bible was, honestly, they did. But my relationship with Jesus stayed and the craziest thing happened. My confidence in the reliability of Scripture to tell me who God is, what he's like, what he's done. I even believe it historically. Like, I even believe the part where it says that the sun stood still when Joshua was fighting. That's crazier than the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, if you think about it too long. And I believe that. Don't, don't get it. Don't understand it. So, okay. Teaching over. Over.